Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sons of Ignatius podcast. I am Father Niall Leahy, a Jesuit here in Gardner Street in Dublin, and I am joined again today by Drs. Kevin Hargaden and Dr. Kira Murphy from the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice. This is another day. We're not just still in the same room, still talking about climate change, but we were here two weeks ago talking about Pope Francis' new exhortation, Laudate Deum, on climate change and the Pope's thoughts on this issue as we approach COP28 and that important international intergovernmental meeting that's coming up. And so we had quite a high-level discussion about it last time, talking about science and numbers and politics and some spiritual themes as well. And I left that conversation with the question, how do we translate this into the reality of our lives and what kind of changes do we have to make? So yeah, I was left with that question. What does the Pope expect us to do in our lives? So we agreed to come back again and to talk about that. Roughly speaking, Kevin, like what kind of changes are we looking at? People would love for us to be able to give them a kind of five steps to ecological sustainability. The fact of the situation is that that's impossible because the situation that we're facing is much too complex and dire for an off-the-shelf programmatic response. And that is good news for the people who are listening. Because if we had like five steps that everyone had to do, then it would be unfair because it would apply differently to people who lived in cities as opposed to people who lived in farming communities, people who lived on their own versus people who lived in big families and so on. So it's a better approach to think about you yourself in your location, where you live, who you live with, what your passions are, what your weaknesses are, and to discern then for yourself how to go forward in a more, as Pope Francis says, mature lifestyle. That's the language that he uses. I like that because people really don't like people telling them what to do generally. So we're not here today to tell people what to do, but we are asking them to look at particular areas of their lives, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny cultural moment because on the one hand, there's lots of knee-jerk anti-Catholic bias that imagines that the Pope and the Cardinals and the Archbishops and the Bishops and clergy are walking around telling everyone what to do and poking their nose into business. And at the same time, they're frustrated because Pope Francis writes these environmental documents and they're not specific enough about what should be done. So it feels as if the Pope can't win on this one. But there are frameworks by which we can think in our own location, attending to the details of our own lives, making decisions for ourselves, informed by expertise and wisdom. There are ways forward. Kira, what are the frameworks we should be using to look at our lives and what are the questions we should be asking ourselves or the areas of our lives we should be looking at? So I think it's really important to say first off that our own emissions are very much linked to where we are. So we have personal responsibility for a certain amount of our emissions and then the rest of it is kind of controlled by the situation which we're in. Just by being a citizen in Ireland and the amount of emissions that are related to how the state functions, our public bodies, our public transport system, or lack of, how we produce our electricity, all of these things contribute to what our emissions are and not all of them are within our control. So I think one of the first things it's really important to say is 
it's very important to work to reduce your own emissions, but also recognize that we need to act communally and politically to try and change the system in which we live. Yeah. So um, Pope Francis, he was really strong on that in Laudato Sea, and he's and he brings that back in Laudato Deum as well. Like this requires communal effort and communal solutions. Yeah, he was really clear. So one quote, which is quite striking, I suppose. So he's like, I cannot deny that it is necessary to be honest and recognize that the most effective solutions will not come from individual efforts alone, but above all from major political decisions on the national and international level. But then he continues to say that every little bit helps and that we need to realize that there are no lasting changes without cultural changes. So that's where our personal conversion comes into it and the actions that we must take must contribute to a cultural change and a conversion where we need to decide that this is something that we want to do and we want to change how our entire society lives. So that's a little bit sort of ground up and and also top down and culture is this sort of space where it becomes acceptable to make these individual lifestyle changes and also gives politicians, let's say, the space they need, the breathing space they need to make hard decisions and big changes. Yeah, I mean, when we think about culture, Kira and I particularly like to think about schools because everyone in society agrees that schools are a good idea. There's no wing of society that wants to shut down primary schools. And everyone agrees that children are vulnerable. And yet, there are very, very few primary schools or secondary schools in this country, in any town, where children can cycle or walk safely to their school from their home. So we have a cultural commitment to driving cars that harms vulnerable people who are trying to get to a place that we all agree is absolutely essential. So changing that culture, how do you do that? You can't do that from Eamon Ryan, the Minister for the Environment, putting billboards up. You actually have to have lifestyle change and there have to be early adopters who move to a more active mobility for their family and then that gains momentum. So that culture change is something that is established on the individual level and then somehow in a very complicated fashion all of those individuals making those efforts add up to a tipping point and we end up with system change. And this is something that we think about an awful lot. The transition, the way in which individual action can inform system change and then how system change simplifies the individual acting in a virtuous fashion. So Kira, I mean, how's that working in Ireland at the moment then? Like what kind of transport changes are happening both on an individual level and then on, you know, a systems level? So transport's a really good one to start on because it is one of the highest contributors to Ireland's emission profile. Right. So transport overall contributes about 19% and it's after agriculture and just before residential in terms of residential heating. So with transport at the minute, we are, as Kevin said, incredibly car dependent. We have designed our settlements and we've designed our urban centres to allow access to cars everywhere, pretty much. And cycling and walking and public transport to a certain extent are regulated to kind of second space. They're kind of afterthoughts. They're squeezed in. They're squeezed in, literally (laughs) squeezed in. But there are some changes, but I think it's really important to recognise that these changes, they can happen Technically, quite fast, but all of these things will take time because they're infrastructural. So in certain areas, you can have changes, but we really need to, like, they need to be happening much quicker. Mm -hmm. But really, they are infrastructural changes that are needed. The way I kind of like to think about how individual and communal change can impact structural change 
is like let's just say I decide to commute to work by bike. Mm-hmm. I love it. It is a really good way of getting in, but it is actually quite dangerous and there is very poor surface on the road in some areas. So you need to really know where to avoid and you need to be really careful with the cars coming behind you because they're sharing a bus lane as well and cars tend to use the bus lane. So it's my decision to cycle in, but I would not tell everyone to do it unless they were comfortable doing it. And that's where the communal action comes in, where the likes of the Galway cycle bus, where the kids cycle to school. And I think Kevin was talking about this as well. The kids cycle to school, but with the protection of their parents literally putting their bodies on the line to protect them from traffic. So it is, it's basically a movable cycle lane. So it's kind of like a soft infrastructure. Yeah. Kevin, could you tell us a bit, what's that cycle bus? A cycle bus. And this is something that it's most successful in Galway, but it could be implemented literally in every town and parish in the country. And what effectively happens is that you have a kind of bee swarm of little kids in their high vis cycling along at their speed, which is slow. And yeah. drivers are not, I mean, Kira and I and yourself now can testify to this. Drivers are reckless around adults and they're not more careful around children. So adults go outside the swarm mm-hmm. and they basically take up the lane. And that might be very frustrating to the driver behind, but there are far more people traveling in the cycle bus yeah. than there are people in the cars. And were all those kids in cars, then the traffic would be far worse again. So it's one of those situations where yeah. we don't have the cultural imagination to see that this temporary delay for you is actually speeding you up and so the cycle bus works very effectively in terms of protecting children and inculcating the habits of cycling to school but no developed economy should be operating off the assumption that parents will literally put their bodies in the way between cars and their children Mm -hmm. to get to school it boggles our mind that people who are drivers can't understand that every cyclist reduces motor traffic and everyone who moves onto a bike increases the capacity for the people who have to drive, whether through disability or because they're builders or there are no options for them to walk or to cycle. Yeah. So that's what I think Pope Francis is getting at when he says that it's on the individual level that cultural change occurs. Cultural change is a fancy term. Infrastructure is, you can very easily lose track of these conversations. But what it amounts to is if you were to renovate your house to be a phase in the point where you're extending your house say to make it more usable where your house becomes less usable in that transition period and everybody recognizes that in that stage of building and transitioning that's just a period you have to go through and then at the end you end up with a house that's much a much better machine for living so the cycle lane and active mobility and public transport infrastructure that needs to be installed right now each individual small segment will be a massive interruption and you'll be tempted to oppose it because it will only make traffic worse. But if you add up all of those different extensions, then at the end of the works, we'll actually end up with a situation where there's less motor traffic, where motor journeys that have to happen take shorter amounts of time and where heart disease plummets, where children's sense of independence grows, where the sense of community grows, where energy returns to the main street. Less noise pollution. Less noise pollution, uh, less what we call the Oslo effect, where the micro particles that come from brake pads and tires, which we are increasingly learning, are doing desperate damage to the lungs Mm. of young people and the livelihoods of old people. There's just so many benefits. So I suppose... When we talk about infrastructure change and system change and cultural change, people don't know really what we're saying in terms of what difference does it make to their lives. Here's how it pans out. People who are listening to this should not oppose the installation of cycle lanes, increased pathways, um, public transport infrastructure. 
Just don't oppose it. Don't give in to the short circuit thinking that imagines that this will make things worse because there are lots of people working on this and if they're allowed to complete the process, we'll end up with much more livable settlements. And we'll be healthier as well. We'll be healthier. Our emissions in terms of transport, which are the easiest to reduce, will crash. And that's what Francis is saying about culture change, getting us out of this what we call carbon captivity. So when we're talking about increasing cycling, for example, there is more of an onus on young people to make these lifestyle changes because young people are fitter and healthier and stronger. Yes, to a certain degree. But, you know, when we talk about technology around environmentalism, people often jump to things like fancy electric cars, which cost 90,000 euros, when in fact for 900 euros you can buy an e-bike, which actually makes cycling open to all ages. And when we say that, that's not theoretical for us. A member of our JCFJ team, past retirement age, bought an e-bike and now cycles every single day to the beach. They cycle out to the beach and they swim and then they cycle home again. We have one very famous JCFJ team member called Peter McFerry, who has swapped his car for an e-bike and cycles in from Ballymund. I didn't know that. And, I, mean, oh. I mean, Peter is such an ardent cyclist now that he has won the wounds of loyalty to the bike in Dublin. He's fallen on the Lewis tracks. So he fell off the bike two weeks ago outside College Green because the Lewis tracks, as every cyclist knows, are absolutely lethal. But that's a man, I won't give Peter's age, but he's long past retirement age. And that commute is what, it's a good few kilometres. And it's made effortless for him. And there's a few hills there There coming coming through Glasnevin. So uh, the e-bike is actually the number one, along with solar panels, the e-bike is the amazing technology that can help us. There's not necessarily a need for people to be jumping towards more expensive and more elaborate technologies when in most cases wage earners will be able to be helped considerably by the government bike to work scheme and once you get on a bike as Kira said we don't know anyone who's gotten on a bike and has given it up because it is a simply enjoyable activity hampered by the danger caused by the lack of And uh, one thing I've noticed about when I cycle now in the city It's only by becoming a cyclist that I realized how noisy and smelly cars are. When you're in a car, it's like you're in a little, you know, you're back in the Garden of Eden. Everything (laughs) smells nice, (laughs) looks nice and it's quiet. And it's like a little womb being in a car and a new one anyway. And all the sound is muffled out and it's all very smooth. And then like when you're outside, especially if you're on a main road and like the noise that cars make is incredible. Like it's deafening. Everybody has had this experience practically in Ireland of going to continental Europe and visiting cities in Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium. Even I got a text message today from someone who's in Seville, where the temperatures are very often extraordinarily hot. And she was saying the cycle lane infrastructure is amazing here. And then we come home and we're like, well, it would be nice if we had that here. Dot, dot, dot. I'm going to oppose a cycle lane. I'm going to oppose a bus corridor. So my experience of that was about 10 years ago, I had a little moment of ecological conversion when I went to visit a friend of mine who was studying in Germany. And we arrived on the Thursday evening. And on the Saturday morning, I realized that I was profoundly calm. And it was because in this little medieval city, Tübingen, in southern Germany, they basically just banned cars. They provided lots of active mobility routes and buses. And I mean, this is Bavaria, so the winters get harsh. The old Mm -hmm. people still get to the pharmacy. Everything still functions. But the lack of noise had a profound physiological impact beyond even the psychological impact. And at that moment, the penny dropped for me. And it was when I began to be this environmental zealot. (laughs) The car was promised to be this liberation device. And it's actually holding us captive at the moment. It's not fit for purpose. And everybody who's listening to this, just pay attention to how often cars 
have single occupants. They're built for four, they're built for five, they're built like tanks, and they're just heated sofas rolling around with one person in them. They're usually only active for 3% of the time. They're parked for 97% of the time. They cost a huge amount of money. The average car ownership in Ireland costs almost 10,000 euros a year. So 10,000. 10, that's the AA figures. They're not, that's not like wow. an environmental so that's coming up with figures. So, that's the AA. So your, your car devaluing? That's De- depreciation. Few, few thousand in there. Yeah, the, the yeah. loan itself or the cash payment. You've got maintenance, upkeep and petrol. Yeah. So it, it adds up. Even if you were to take a taxi every time you needed to go somewhere, you probably wouldn't spend 10,000 euros a year and you'd be driven around. Either that or car share. Like, I don't own a car and I have recently just signed up to go car because I'm like, I, I will need a car for a thing in the future. In a few weeks, I'll just need it. And it is the perfect option. I'm like, I'll pick it up at the train station. I'll drive to where I need to go and then I'll drop it back and get the train home. And it's very easy. Yeah. And it doesn't cost 10,000 euros a year. It doesn't co- it cost nowhere near 10,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, I think when Gavin was saying he had his conversion, I think mine was during COVID when you were going for walks around town and it was silent. And you know, the conversations that you can have when you're walking beside someone, you don't have to constantly say what? Mm-hmm. You could just have a normal conversation and you could walk onto the road if there was, if you were bypassing another couple walking around. Yeah, it was, I think it was only during COVID that I realized what you were missing when the noise of the traffic was there and the calm was just people are looking for peace and calm these days it's hard to come by and there you go maybe the noise of cars on the road is probably don't realize how much of a contributing factor that is and the lack of physical activity that we have in our lives one of the things we all the jcfj team cycle effectively now and one of the things we notice is the difference between our ability to get working in the morning, having cycled into work, wow. as opposed to having driven. That's because interesting. there's a passivity that is bred into our culture across the board. And look, I'm not going to like pop psychologize, but we are embodied creatures. And it makes sense that we do better when we use our bodies for what they're made for. In fact, Kira has a great story again in Galway about a Jesuit school who had an initiative that empirically proves this. So it's the Jesuit Primary School in Galway City. It's called Ignod. That's it. And they recently, or uh, in the last couple of years, they set up a school street. So it basically means that the road is blocked. You cannot drive down it and drop off or pick up time. And the reason they did this was, I think it was a, it was, it was initially a green schools initiative where they were trying to reduce emissions and they piloted it. And the teachers said that the difference was just incredible, that they could not go back permanently to the situation that they were in. She has some lovely phrases where the school is now, with the restrictions and car traffic now, the school is nestled within the community instead of assaulting it. With the space being free and safe for the kids beforehand, they get dropped off earlier and they play soccer. Before they go into school, the neighbours are actually able to leave their house and open their windows because the air quality is much better. They sit outside and greet the kids as they're going past. I imagine... Over Halloween, they tended to put up decorations at Halloween and at Christmas and ask the kids how they were getting on and engage with them. And it wasn't just about the emissions or the air quality. It was that the kids were settled going into the school. They were much better able to learn. Mm. They had worked off some of their energy before going in. So it was like all around, it was just an incredible initiative. And it started off with a green school. And if that works 
if that applies to children, well, then I presume it also applies to office workers or factory workers or anyone. Yeah, yeah. You find you hit the ground running in the morning after you've cycled in. I mean, absolutely. The difference it makes in terms of clearing the mind, just from my own experience, is very striking. And I think it's been demonstrated again and again in studies that particularly around educational attainment, physical activity improves the capacities of children to pay attention. And there's remarkable studies even about how the difference between a child's understanding of their locality and their neighborhood when they're cycling versus when they're driving. If you get them to draw pictures of what's around their school, the child who cycles or walks is able to basically make a map. Wow. Whereas the child who's inside the car basically has their house and the school. And everything in between is a blur. So they're not paying attention to the environment. They're not able to. They're they're simply, because of the womb that they're nestled inside, they can't attend to the world through which they're moving. And so, again, I'm not going to pop neurologize there, but in terms of the educational development and the fulfillment of people's capacities, it seems very obvious to me that if you're raised in a situation where you are attending to the place where you live and learning its rhythms and learning its seasonality, then... You are learning how it is to be a human in a way that you're deprived if you're constantly finding yourself mediated by this huge mm. hulking technology. Yeah. Okay, good. We've done a good deep dive there on the advantages and benefits of cycling over taking the car. Thank you. That's been very enlightening for me. Could we say something about train and flying as well? I'll just share my little story from this summer. I flew out to Portugal on my holidays and basically got the train back most of the way. And that was kind of the holiday. It was going from place to place on the train. And yeah, again, I thought it really added something to the holiday. I discovered a website, seat61.com. He's a retired train, what's the word? Station master, I think it was from Britain. And in his retirement now, he just kind of documents all these train journeys all over Europe. And one of his points is that each train journey is different because you're looking at the countryside that you're passing through, whereas each flight is essentially the same. You know, it's you're just aware. What are you aware of on a flight? The interior of the plane, and they all look pretty much the same. Whereas when you're on a train, you actually you can see the countryside or basically where you are. And then trains, like in Europe anyway, like are amazing. They're actually really fast. One morning, we left Bordeaux at 8.30 in the morning, and we were in London at 2 p.m by train like that's remarkable it's incredible yeah i mean you would have had to leave at a similar time to fly yeah and you'd arrive at heathrow as opposed to into the center of london yeah so kira in terms of carbon emissions numbers what role do you think can flying have in our lives flying is one of those ones where if you really want to reduce your own personal emissions you look at how much you fly okay so for the return flight to say to Paris from Dublin it's just under 400 kilograms of carbon emissions for the return flight and if we think about how much we should be or how much we're trying to reduce our emissions to we're trying to reduce our emissions to about six tons of carbon emissions equivalent Mm -hmm. by 2030 so basically you'd be using up about a twelfth of 
or a little bit under a twelfth of your emissions for one flight for an entire year. Yeah. And that's just to reduce our emissions by 50% and not to the net zero, which we need to get to. And that's just to Paris. And that's just to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. to New York, it's about 800 kilograms. So it's... Nearly a ton. It's nearly a ton. So yeah. how much you fly really impacts it is one of the most carbon intensive things that we can do and i think the alternative is often dismissed as impossible when mm-hmm. it's really it's not for some stuff like you can choose in some cases if you're lucky enough you can choose where you want to go so i am very lucky in my job i get to travel slow as much as i can so if i have to go to a meeting in the uk or in continental europe i am able to get the ferry either to Spain or France or to the UK and train it. And I absolutely love it. I love it. It is my favorite way of traveling and flying is so much more stressful compared to getting the train because you can, you have the time to think about what you're doing. You have the time to prepare for whatever meeting you're going to or if it's on the holidays, you have time to decompress Mm -hmm. before you get there. The last time I was on a ferry, I also got to, there's loads of side benefits. (laughs) So the last time I was on a ferry, I got the ferry to Bilbao and I seen dolphins on the way over and pods of whales on the way back. Wow. And you will not get that on a plane. So it's not for every journey, but it is a very viable replacement if we're really serious about trying to And it sounds like the the experience of traveling then of actually journeying becomes part of the holiday or becomes part of the experience in a way that often with flying it doesn't yeah you meet different people as well i think one of the first times i did the train travel for work i met people like who who have avoided flying for similar reasons so someone who i think he worked as a behavioral psychologist and he just wouldn't work on projects that would require him to fly. So any client that was more than like a day and a half travel, I think, he just wouldn't work with them or only worked with them over Zoom. And then on the way back, I met with an environmental ecologist and he was the same. He was just like, I just don't travel. And we had, like, it was was really, it was was great meeting different people. And these conversations wouldn't really come up, I don't think, in an airport. One of the frameworks that you can use to think about things is the difference between luxury emissions and lifestyle emissions. And that's going to be different for each person. So, like, for me, actually, getting in the car is a luxury emission. Why do you say that? Because I live in Maynooth and I have a bike with lots of storage and I can do my shopping on my bike. I can drop my kids to school on the bike. I can go to the gym on the bike. <laughs> the absurdity of driving to the gym <laughs> strikes me. Everything that I can do, I can do on the bike and I can cycle to the train station and come into work. So for me, a car journey is a luxury. You know, you're tempted sometimes to, oh sure, I'll just get in the car because the weather is so bad. Very rarely, actually, but it's a luxury. Now for other people, it's a lifestyle requirement because they, they might live in a suburb of Kilkenny and their office is in Dublin and there's not a public transport situation so that's a a lifestyle emission for them the thing about planes is in the vast majority of cases it's luxury and we call it lifestyle i preached about the environmental collapse in the summer and a really grumpy old scottish woman i'm able to describe her to that degree because she's not going to be listening to this (laughs) Um, she's a really grumpy oh you mean mavis (laughs) (laughs) i think the word for her is contrarian 
Okay. But this sermon, and this is a woman in her late 80s. She loved this sermon. And afterwards, she wanted me to sit down beside her. And she said, I remember the first time I ever got on an airplane. It was in the early 1970s. And it's only in the 1980s that Irish people started to think that it was their human right to get a holiday abroad. And now she waved her hand across the congregation that was gathered for tea and coffee after the service. Now they all go three or four times a year. Typical Dublin middle class situation so it sounds like a dreadful thing to be told you really do have to reduce your flights but 20 years ago you would never have imagined that you would fly to new york for the weekend that's a thing that like elton john did not someone who's a technology manager in the hse so that's again an individual change that feels dramatic but then once you've made the change it's not like your life is yeah. is hampered in so a particular way it will be strange in the staff room initially when someone asks you so you know are you going anywhere nice this summer um, and say no because we went somewhere nice last summer yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why, why, <laughs> maybe i'll go again in a few years time but we were in spain last year and there you go can't wait to go again in- so so often people say it's for work so i have to fly but like there were meetings that kira should have gone to in malaysia i think it was or somewhere philippines, the philippines yeah. This coming month, and she just said no. The world continues to turn. There were meetings that I was meant to go to in Chicago and in New Orleans in 2024, and I just said no. Turns out that the meetings can happen, and you can just zoom in. So, so much of what we assume is normal around flights is luxury emissions that we're passing off if we're being honest as lifestyle. Right, it's just been normalized. Okay, what other areas? Should we talk about There is one other area around the train travel and flights. You say normalization. In the European Union, apart from the Netherlands, the fuel that goes into an airplane is basically tax-free. The fuel that goes into a train is taxed. So there's a very easy system change. The only nation bold enough in the European Union to tax aviation fuel is the Netherlands. And nobody has offered an even level playing field for trains as they offer to plane so there we're systematically encouraging a certain kind of industry at the detriment of another it's not free market Uh, like nobody should be pleased by this and there's an easy system change that we could implement across the board in europe and suddenly the prices for getting from from brussels to berlin or from paris to milan would collapse and then it would make sense like if flights were fairly priced or if there was a level playing field yeah it would mix you wouldn't just assume that you'd be flying somewhere every year I think the flights thing is probably one of the more, whenever I talk to, I suppose, adults about this, it is one of the more confronting hot button issue. Like, it's one of the things, and I'm always very careful to say, like, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you to think about when you do it, there are very real consequences. Even, I think a lot of time, it's you kind of just decide spur in the moment. It's like, oh, we just decided to go here. Or it's like, what's the meaning from the trip? What are you trying to get from it? Can you get that from Donegal (laughs) (laughs) or Sligo? But with adults, it's one of the more confronting issues around climate action. Yeah, there's definitely something about the social prestige and honours kind of associated with flying. And I think that's the hard thing to give up. It's not the joy of flying. It's part of... The story of a successful person is that we fly here and there and not to have that anymore is, yeah, it's a little bit of a blow to, let's say, your social standing or how people perceive you. Absolutely the case. And there you see how these personal lifestyle choices nudge into the spiritual. And that's, I think, why Pope Francis talks about an ecological conversion. He's not just talking about a few like lifestyle changes and ethical tweaks. He's really saying that our identities are wrapped up in carbon capitalism in a way that requires 
repentance. He actually says that in Laudato Deum, that we need to go on a journey of reconciliation. We need to reconcile, then that means there's dispute and conflict and harm that's been done. The implication is we're doing that to ourselves by committing to this (laughs) Instagram approach to well-being. But it turns out that Donegal is just as Instagram worthy as <laughs> as anywhere yeah. in the Canaries. Could do with a train line to Donegal as well. Yeah, that, 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 would, that would be very nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so we really have focused in on transport. Could, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want other simple things uh, that Catholics could think about, it used to be that Fridays would be days of fasting. So bring back fasting from red meat once a week, mm-hmm. just as an experiment in your own household. Offer it up to the Lord. Go vegetarian for that day and see where that takes you. Again, the major block to people going vegetarian is that they don't know what to cook. It's a question of imagination. And if we reduce our red meat consumption, then that's another place where we can really make a big difference in terms of national emissions. Lentils. You know, they it, are underrated. I've, yeah, I've they can be delicious. When it comes yeah. to theology, there's a joke in theology. It's like, well, the answer is always Jesus. And when it comes to like sustainable yeah. living, I feel like the answer is always lentils. Yeah. Like, to, if you just get lentils into your life, it'll all kind of happen. It'll fit. It'll come together. Yeah, food is, it is one of the things that, as well as flying, it's the other confronting thing. People really do not want to be told what to eat even like by nutritionists, by anyone. And it can be quite a tricky one. But yeah, I think in terms of emissions from meat products, beef is way and above the most high emitting food stuff that you can eat. Right. So just eat um, fried chicken. Fried chicken. Just eat or, fried or chicken. Even, or even <laughs> beef like as a treat once a week. <laughs> or, right. Yeah. yeah. Or um, invest in a vegetarian cookbook, which I am a relatively new convert to mainly vegetarian food and it can be delicious <laughs> depending on where you get it from but yeah. it can be delicious yeah. great okay we've covered a lot of ground there <laughs> Our transport <laughs> conversation but before we wrap things up are there any other closing remarks or words of encouragement that you would want to say well closing remarks the other area that we would identify as a framework for people to consider is fashion on average people in britain and ireland buy 24 kilograms of new clothes a year and i suspect that not all of that is needed and fast fashion obviously has a massive ecological impact and a devastating human toll so you've seen the factories yeah i spent a large amount of my carbon miles to go to bangladesh to work on a project around trying to secure just wages for factory workers and these conglomerates that employ 400,000 people and the framework that we went with was very elaborate and it turns out it won't work because the power of these conglomerates is so large these are the conglomerates that are behind the i won't name any of the labels but those brands outsourced to these huge corporations and i said in one meeting where factory workers had at their own expense come to talk to us a bunch of theologians who knows how desperate you have to be if you think that a theologian can help you (laughs) when it became evident that our beautiful framework wouldn't apply in their context we said well what can we do when we go back and talk to our students and to our parishioners what can we say from you to them and one young woman stood up and said tell them my blood is on your clothes. And that, for me, again, was another ecological conversion moment. I'm not saying you can never go to the high street retailer and buy a cheap pair of trousers, but I am saying the knee-jerk impulse to just consume in the realm of fashion, it's deathly. And it's so obviously a place where you're not even properly a fashionista if you're just buying, 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 buying. If there's no love for the thing, 
then to what extent are you even being betrayed by the consumption habits itself? So I would say that our wardrobes are another place where there might be a framework to make the big systemic change come down to the ground in our own lives. And I say that, of course, now that people can't see me, but I am the most stylish man in Ireland. (laughs) It's a wonder you're not on television, Kevin. (laughs) Thanks for that, Kevin. They are very arresting words and so much... And the fast fashion industry, like so many other inter-globalized industries, the real costs of our purchases are hidden from us. We just don't see them and it's hidden by design. So how can we see? But yeah, it's these sort of yeah, reporting these stories back that can awaken us, I suppose, to the cruel realities that are behind innocent purchases. I think the fast fashion is probably one of the last kind of big areas where we can make our own decisions. We have direct power over our choice on that and it is I think I mentioned the flying is one of the things that is kind of like a touchy subject with adults but I think with younger people fast fashion is the tricky point there and I think a lot of that is to do with when you don't have money you just be like I'll get what I can afford I'll get a top I'll get a top and then it's I think that is the point where it's like with and I had these difficult conversations with students and I'm like again I'm not telling you what to do but I'm like, your arguments for fast fashion don't really stand when the people who make your clothes are saying that my blood is on them. Yeah. So it is It is a confronting thing and it is a difficult conversation. But Where would be a good place to buy clothes? Well, I tend to get most of mine from my sister. <laughs> <laughs> second hand, hand yeah. yeah. St. Vincent yeah. Paul and Enable Ireland and yeah. lots, of, lots yeah. of other second hand shops. Charity shops. Charity incredible. shops are great. Some of them have really, really good collections. Like they're doing it really well now. They don't accept stuff that isn't sellable. So you can go into a shop and know that you're going to get good quality. There's loads of apps that you can get or that you can use. And that's the kind of online shopping as well. So it's secondhand, but it is the convenience aspect as well. And then like vintage shops, everything comes back into fashion if you wait long enough. So So some decisions are harder than others. There's some low-hanging fruit there, some easy wins for people to reduce their carbon emissions. There are some more emotive and difficult decisions and sacrifices, let's say, that people need to make. And I suppose in response to that, I would say, well, yeah, we're Christians. That's what we do. We're supposed to be the ones who can make sacrifices. That's what Jesus did. We sort of celebrate his life-giving sacrifice every Sunday. He's the model. He's the one we're supposed to be following. Sacrifices can't be off the table for us. Surely we need to be the people who feel motivated to make sacrifices when they are life-giving sacrifices, both for us and for others. I absolutely agree, but I have reservations with that language because real sacrifice can be hard and make your life worse. Nothing that we've suggested here will make your life worse. I did say life-giving sacrifices, Gav. Absolutely, but I suppose what I'm saying is that instead of, like, it is one of our ongoing problems that, like, we call the whole thing greenhouse effect, and it's like, I actually like greenhouses. That sounds nice. Global warming. Oh, yeah, I love warm places. Our language misleads us. So I absolutely agree with the sentiment. Kira, you agree with me, don't you? (laughs) What are you doing if you're making an investment? You're actually putting yourself on the path to a life that is in line with the creation that has been lovingly brought into being and is attended to and sustained by the gaze of the loving God. So it only appears hard is what I'm saying. It's actually not hard to not spend your money constantly on clothes you only wear three times. It's not hard 
to say no to yet another hamburger. And it's not hard for you to say, actually, I'm not going to just emotionally vent by flying to Prague for the weekend. Nothing here is particularly difficult and all of it has the gain of rooting you back into the real world instead of living in the consumer's delusion. Okay, well, I'm not going to let you have the last word, Kevin, so I'm going to respond to that now. This conversation is turning into a debate. I would say it is hard when you're constantly getting messages that this is what you should be doing. Oh, you want a good time? Yeah, Fly yeah, to Prague. Yeah, oh, yeah, you want right. to feel yeah. good? Buy this new top. Oh, you want something finger-licking good? Just go down to whatever, you <laughs> yeah. know, the takeaway and get some oozing red meat. I mean, it is hard because that's what we've been conditioned to go and buy and spend our money. Like this is, I think breaking that mindset is hard. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go in, okay. I'm gonna go in the middle there. All change is hard. <laughs> like it is, like lots of studies have been done to say that change, everyone likes the status quo. It is hard to change. You've got your habits set up. You know what you're doing. And it is even for something very simple, like changing what your weekly shopping is because then you have to think of a new list. It's hard, but we are once, creatures of habit. once you've done it, then yeah. the new normal, I think, is what Kevin is saying, is not worse. It is, it can be better. Yeah. 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 Um, Kira, you've, <laughs> you've found the middle ground there. <laughs> Thankfully, we can still be friends now, Kevin. This is, yeah. So, okay, well, let's leave it there, folks, for today. That was a really invigorating conversation, and I think we really got into some of the issues there. So thank you. Thank you both for having thought about this stuff and also taking real concrete actions in your lives as well because you're people who can speak from experience as well. Like you're, You are making changes and you are changing culture as you do that. And because of your work in JCFJ, you're also putting pressure on our political leaders as well to make changes too. So thank you both for making those individual and cultural and political changes a reality in our world and we must do this again we'd love to yep sounds good okay thanks everyone thanks for listening god bless